listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Well, let me, let me pray and let's work through this text. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. I think that probably the most profitable thing for us to do this morning would be just to work through this text. And I think that there's very clear logic that Peter is wanting to encourage the people with. And the beauty of Scripture is it's so wonderful. It applied to his first century readers scattered throughout modern-day Turkey 2,000 years ago. And it just applies directly to us as well by God's grace. And so I pray that as we read this text and as we think deeply about it, God's people would be encouraged. And, and if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, whether you know yourself to not be a Christian, or maybe, and this is very possible, that you think you are, and maybe you're not truly trusting in Jesus. Maybe you're trusting in sort of an outward religious form or a cultural ethic. I pray that by God's grace today, He might open your eyes and that you would see Jesus, that he would give you the gift of faith and repentance so that you can turn away from broken pleasures, you can turn away from self-trust, you can turn away from worthless idols and turn towards Jesus like many of the people in this room have already done, who of course aren't now perfect because they're trusting in Jesus, but they're trusting in the perfect Christ who alone can save. And then I pray that as we, at the end, as our custom is the first Sunday of every month, to come around the Lord's table, I pray that you, because you are now a Christian, would be able to come and remember Jesus' work on the cross with us as we partake in this simple meal, this bread and this juice that represents Jesus' broken body and his spilled blood on our behalf to make us right with our holy and righteous creator and God. So let's read, let me pray, let's read God's word and let's, let's enjoy being together in the presence of the Lord today. Let me pray, Lord, thank you for your kindness to us. Oh, you, you've been so good. On this Thanksgiving weekend, just thank you for your kind providence that before eternity passed, you determined, as Acts 17 says, that we would be born in this day, in this country, in this place, in this culture, in this town, that we would live here now, that we would be gathered together in this room, opening your book, thinking deeply about your work to reconcile a lost world to yourself. Father, I pray that you would help us go beyond just the tradition of Sunday morning, and church, but that you would cause your family to see and savor Jesus, and that today you would invite more people into your family, not through the strength of their own will or their determination to live better, because those things will fail, but that today you would invite them to your family as you give them eyes to see Jesus and what he has done, which is their only hope to trust in him. So help us today, Lord, with these things. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's read, starting in verse 1 of chapter 4. 
Peter writes this, and remember the theme, one of the major themes of First Peter is that he's writing to a group of people who are being persecuted for their faith. Now, they are not yet enduring necessarily intense physical persecution, like what will happen in a decade or two where the emperor of Rome will start to martyr Christians and drag them off to be either eaten by lions in the Colosseum or burned alive as street lamps in the city of Rome. Hasn't quite reached that level yet. But certainly they are being persecuted very severely, socially at least, for their faith in Jesus. And Peter is writing to them to encourage them as they endure these trials and these sufferings. Verse 1, chapter 4. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What does that mean? Does that mean that Christians are now sinless? It's not been my experience. I don't think it's been yours. I don't think that's what it's saying, but I do think Peter's clearly saying something to us, so we'll dig into that. So for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time is past that for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Okay, let's stop there. And let's peel back the the layers of the onion, so to speak, of what Peter is saying to us here. And think deeply about, I think this text breaks up into two nice little paragraphs and flows of logic. So we'll handle the first one here. Here's what I think, just in bullet form, what Peter is saying in this paragraph, and we're going to unpack it. I think he's saying that because Jesus suffered, we can break from sin and live for God. I think we got it up there on the screen for you because we'll leave it up there for a little while as we peel through this. Because Jesus suffered, we can break from sin and live for God. And so that's, I think, the reasoning there in in verse 1 where he says, since therefore Christ has suffered in the flesh. So what he's saying there is not that Jesus just had a difficult life or, or that, you know, he endured mistreatment, but he's speaking specifically there about Jesus's suffering on the cross. So on the cross, Jesus is God the Son, is bearing He is suffering in our place. He's bearing the wrath and the punishment of God the Father for the sin of all those who will ever turn and trust in him. So Jesus, as God, but yet fully man, is suffering in the flesh, and he is making a decision. So so this is, is, you kind of think about this deeply here, so that even though Jesus is fully fully God, he's also fully man. And Jesus made a decision to prefer, he chose to suffer, to lay down his life, 
so that God's punishment would be absorbed on the cross. And so Peter then is saying, arm ourselves. He's saying to us to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking that Jesus had when he willingly laid down his life to obey God the Father's will to punish sin, to absorb his holiness, and then rise again in victory over that sin. And so Peter is saying, just like Jesus made a decision to obey God's will and say no to the flesh, then we now, as we endure on a much less level, I mean, we're not going to the cross and dying for the world. The stakes are not nearly as high, obviously, in, in our small little by comparison moments of suffering even though to us they may seem very intense and certainly they are but Peter is saying is that same logic that Jesus who's laying down his life as God and as man now arm yourselves with this same decision to then say yes to God and no to sin so then there's that tricky little verse that tricky little clause at the end of that first verse where he says that for whoever has suffered and by that meaning saying yes to God and no to to the world saying yes I'm going to obey God and not see because here's the situation that the people are faced with they're being persecuted for being Christians and so what clearly would their temptation have been to say oh man this suffering is not worth it life was easier back before I was a Christian so I think I'll just, you know, recant my confession so that I can get rid of this suffering. And Peter is saying to them, no, no. Stick with your confession and arm yourself with the same way of thinking. So he's saying, for whoever now has suffered, now he's speaking about his readers, not Jesus. So for whoever is undergoing persecution of whatever level, for being a Christian, in the flesh, has ceased from sin. So what is he saying there? Does that mean now that if we're trusting in Christ, and we're making a decision to obey God, that we are now necessarily sinless? Well, clearly not, because the rest of the Bible would contradict that. In fact, I don't need to go any further than 1 John 1, 8, that says, if we say we have no sin, we, now John is writing to Christians, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So clearly Peter is not saying that it, once you've made a decision to obey God and reject going back on your confession in Jesus just because of difficulty in the moment doesn't necessarily mean then that you are sinless, right? So what is he saying? I think what he's saying is, is that when we make a decision despite cultural opposition to say yes to Jesus, despite opposition that would want to pull us away, it has a sort of strengthening and anchoring effect in our lives where we are, and I'm going to use an old biblical word, which has actually become a southern word, so it's kind of like my two worlds are colliding and I love it. We are reckoning, right? Like, like before... The Beverly Hillbillies or whatever used that word. It was used in the old King James language in the Bible. We are reckoning. Like we are making a determination in our mind that continuing to say yes to God despite the opposition is better than falling back away from God and just kind of going back and giving in. And when we do that, 
Suffering actually is our servant. Think about this now because it has this sort of kind grace of digging the footings of our foundation deeper and it helps us make a cleaner break with the sin that previously entangled us. Doesn't mean we're sinless, but it has this sort of fortifying effect. It has this declarative effect in our life where we are in the midst of persecution, not just when everything's holly jolly, but in the midst of trouble and stress and suffering and persecution, we have the opportunity when, when otherwise lesser people might sort of fall back, when we say, no, I'm going to stick with Jesus in my confession. It has this effect of declaring to our own souls and to the world, I've made a clean break with my old life. Do you see? I think that's what Peter is saying here. Peter is not contradicting John and saying that once you're a Christian, you will cease from sin. He's saying that when God in his kind providence allows providence, allows for you to suffer, suffering has an ability to be our servant, to dig the footings of our trust in Jesus deeper and sever the root and the entanglement that we still have with, with sin. And so I think that's, that's Peter's logic there. Just a few implications. Do you see how this, um, this can actually turn the tables on our suffering? And do you see how suffering can actually be kind of a servant to fortify us rather than something to, to, to shipwreck our faith? Well, let's keep going. Verse 3, it says there that the time is past for doing what the Gentiles do. I love this list. And I think it's just appropriate after a tailgate Saturday that he lists a few of these things. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Hopefully none of you were engaged in any of that yesterday in any parking lots across the southeast. That list seems kind of drastic, doesn't it? Whenever you see lists of sin in the Bible, be careful about just writing, your, writing yourself out of that and saying, oh, well, that, you know, that, that's not me. That's not me. I think when he says, when he says living in sensuality and passions, I think we tend to just sort of think of like frat house craziness, or maybe we tend to zero it in on just particularly sexual sin, and certainly that's in view here. But even if we've never been involved in sort of these outward sort of obvious things, we all have passions that want to draw us away. We all, before we came to Jesus, certainly have passions, whatever it may be, that draw us away from God. And he says here in verse 4, with respect to this, these, I guess, previous friends of yours or acquaintances are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. Isn't that beautiful when the Bible just gives us something? Has that been anybody's experience here? Maybe you've made a clean break with a former way of life. And maybe one of the most difficult things that you've had to deal with is the scorn that you now have as a Christian. And sometimes, isn't it God's kind grace that we don't necessarily have to be a great preacher or somebody that can explain the Bible real well to people, that sometimes in God's kind providence, just not partaking in the way of life that we used to partook in, part, whatever the past tense of that, but that we used to, that we used to participate in. My wife's trying to voice it to me, but I just can't see 
But just by God's kind grace, sometimes the best witness that we can be involved in as Christians is by just making a clean break with former mindsets and actions and groups and activities and things that we used to do. And just by virtue of not going to that place or not having that conversation or not getting drugged down into that type of humor or, or whatever it may be is in itself a contrast and a witness to an onlooking world around you. Friends, turn it around and instead of saying, oh God, it's so hard to be a Christian, thank him for his kind grace that you can preach the gospel just by not, you have an opportunity to preach the gospel just by not doing something. That's, that's beautiful. That's, that's kind of God to do that. And one of my favorite things to do is to sit in that room when people join the church and listen to their stories about how they come to Jesus. And even now, I'm just looking at a young guy who, whose life was full of things that would match up with things on this list, more obvious sins. And God was kind to him to give him a heart to turn away from those things and trust in Jesus and and God has given him many opportunities to witness to people that he used to do these things with. Praise God. Praise God for that. And then it says in verse 5, but they will give an account. Listen to this well, friends. Especially if you know yourself not to be a Christian. And if you maybe are not yet a Christian, I, I pray that God would, would use this verse to humble you and to stir in you an anxiousness about where your soul is and that he might use this verse and the, the surety of his judgment as a means to draw you to trust in him and not yourself. This is what Peter says about people who are outside of Christ, whether they're drunken Gentiles having orgies in modern-day Turkey or whether they're just self-righteous Americans in 2013. They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Friends, be sure of this, that God in his love, because he is love, judges. And there are only two types of people in the world. There are not black people and white people, most primarily. Not brown people and Asian people, or Western people and Eastern people. There are those that are in Christ and those that are outside of Christ. God judges all. God is holy and righteous. And because he's loving, he keeps his holiness intact. And the way he does that is pouring out his judgment and wrath on his son Jesus, because we could never make up for our rebellion against a holy and righteous God, and so we stand condemned, we stand separated from God. We stand really marching towards our judgment, where we will have to stand before our creator and give an account of our deeds. Friends, who among us thinks that our life has been good enough to stand before God on that day with our own works as our, as our defense. And the good news of the gospel is, is that God judges everyone from every race, from every tribe, from every nation, from every tongue, from every 
culture, from every socioeconomic group. He judges everyone. And those that have turned away from trusting in themselves and are trusting in Jesus and his work, his righteousness, his perfection, not their own meager, filthy rags of righteousness. They are judged in Christ. And because Christ is perfect, he has satisfied God's holiness and has absorbed it and risen again in victory over evil and sin and the grave. But those who are outside of Christ face that judgment with God without Jesus' merit and his work and his power and his righteousness. Friends, the kindest thing I could do to you today, even if it upsets you and causes you to never come back to this church again, would be not to sort of appease you and tickle your ears and make you feel good about yourself so that you can have a motivational week so that you'll come back and we can have a big church and I can report numbers to some sort of network or denomination or whatever saying, yeah, this is how many people we have. And I can go to pastor's conferences and answer that silly little question about how many people are coming to my church. Friends, that's not the point. The kindest thing I can do to you today is not tickle your ears but tell you that there is a sure and certain judgment coming where the good, loving, holy, just creator God exercises his love and justice by judging sin. And you must be trusting in Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian, to not trust in yourself. That day is coming for all of us. If you are trusting in Christ and his righteousness, you will be passed over. You will be in Christ with Jesus forever. If you are outside of Christ, you will be separated from him forever. You need right now to wrestle with the implications of that if you're not a Christian. And I pray that God would give you a heart and eyes to turn away from trusting in yourself and to trust in Jesus. Well, let's keep going here. Let's tidy up verse six there before we move on to the second paragraph. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So as Peter's saying, and we handled this a little bit last week. Remember when we talked about Jesus going to preach to the spirits in prison? And we thought, does that mean that there's sort of like this second chance for people to trust in Christ after they're dead? You know, so is, are these spirits in prisons, people that have died and are now caught in sort of a, a waiting place there? No, we talked about how that's clearly not what the Bible is saying because there's so many other verses in the Bible that talk about how we only live once and then we die and then we're judged. And so what does Peter mean here when he says, for this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead? So I think what Peter is saying here is clearly not to people that who are already dead, but, but Christians, when they were alive, had the gospel preached to them And then they trusted in Christ, and so they were judged in the flesh the way people are. In other words, because their flesh has fallen, we have to all physically die. But now, because they're trusting in Jesus, they are alive in the Spirit. And so this verse, I think, if we read it carefully, is not saying that the gospel needs to be preached to dead people. It means that that those who are already dead, that when they were alive, heard the gospel, trusted it, died, and are now alive in the spirit, awaiting 
the consummation of their body and soul on that last day when Jesus comes again. So I think, again, this first paragraph is saying to us that because Jesus suffered, we can break from sin and live for God. He writes to a group of people 2,000 years ago who were dealing with suffering and persecution and the tugs of former passions and lusts. And the words are as true for us today as they were for them. Because Jesus suffered, we can break from sin and live for God. Well, let's keep going. The last few verses, second paragraph there. The end of all things is at hand. So I don't think that that means that Peter necessarily thought that Jesus was coming back in the next day or two, but I think it is instructive that the New Testament writers write in this way where they're posturing themselves that, look, everything has happened. Jesus has come. He has lived. He has died. He was buried. He rose again. He ascended. And the posture of the New Testament is this expectation that Jesus could and would come back at any moment. And I think that's the posture that the church needs to have even now. The end of all things is at hand. The end of this age is at hand. And because of that, we need to live in this posture of anticipation of Jesus coming back any time to finally and fully set things right. So with that as our posture, Peter writes, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, because we live in this, the face of the imminent return of Jesus, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So that means young college kid or young adult who thinks that you can just kind of sow your wild oats And you know when you get into your 30s and you find somebody to marry and have a couple kids and get a job and like an alarm clock and you start actually being an adult, then like I can trust in Jesus. Friend, this verse is saying to you that the end of all things is hand, that Jesus could come back any moment or in God's providence, you are not promised tomorrow. And so he's saying in light of Jesus coming again, live in a way that your, your head's on straight, that you're thinking about your life. Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. What a beautiful sentence. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so let me summarize this this second paragraph and work through it just a bit, and then we'll receive the Lord's Supper together. I think this sentence summarizes this, this paragraph. Because Jesus is coming again, we should love and serve one another. Because Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And praise God, if you're trusting in Christ, you have nothing to fear at that judgment. But because we're in Christ and because he's coming again, it should make us sober-minded and clear-headed and earnest. And we should love and serve one another. Oh, I pray that these verses here would be true of this 
church, of the culture of this church. Let's think about verse 8 there. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. That we be a place that, that there's just sort of this thick atmosphere of grace where we don't nitpick each other and we're not like you know, on the lookout for each other's deficiencies and weaknesses and faults, but there's this graciousness that just sort of reigns in this place, and that type of mature love covers a multitude of jagged edges and bad attitudes and, and really sin on our part. Oh, I pray that that would be true of our of our culture together as a church. And then verse nine, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This word hospitality means more than just having you know, people that are like you or your friends over for dinner. In fact, in the original language, this word means to literally love strangers or people not like you. And so the, the implication here is that Peter is writing to a group of people who are part of a local church, and he's encouraged them to one another, show hospitality, invite people over, get to know folks, open up your home and your resources to people in your faith family who are not like you. Let's just chew on that for for a little bit. For, to people who are not like you. It's not just to strangers. What, what Peter has in view here is not just to anybody everywhere, although certainly we want to be kind to everybody, but he says, show hospitality or show a love for strangers or people not like you to one another. Context there being this local people hearing Peter's letter as a local Assembly of God's people, a local church without grumbling. One of the things I love about the local church is it forces us not to be able to choose our own friends, right? Because, I mean, anybody can come in this place. And anybody can be part of this church as long as they're trusting in Jesus. And even if they're not trusting in Jesus, they're welcome to come in and worship with us. Even though they may not be worshiping God, they're welcome to come and be part of our life together. We're not going to call them Christians until we're certain that they're trusting in Jesus. But one of the great graces that God has given us, and this is something that that I want to push on here a little bit, because we can be so compartmentalized in our modern life, is that the one of the great, and I want you to see this, that one of the great graces for our own sanctification and a display of the gospel is that in a local church, this is why it's so important to, important to be part of a local church, is because you can't pick your family, right? You can't just hang around with all the cool Christians. You have to hang around with some crazy folks or some people that are harder to love. That's why, friends, It's so bad for your soul when you don't get involved in a local church and commit your life to a local church because then you are not yoked to this sort of sanctifying grace that God has woven into the fabric of what it means to be a Christian. You can kind of dart in and dart out and only associate with little kind of cute groups of Christians who are easy to love and just like you and it's easy to have them over to your house. Or it's easy for you to share your life with them because they are, you know, there's low friction there. But have you ever considered that God intends to use the muddy, exasperating 
friction of life together in a local church to actually be a means of grace by which he makes us more like Jesus and commends the gospel to an onlooking world in a more beautiful way. Have you considered that? That actually having your head on a swivel to love people not like you, which by the way, the church is like a built-in place for that. I mean, it's built in. That actually there's a strange sort of gospel grace that is intended and I think there's something in us that just sort of wants, oh, I want a place where there's just, everything's easy. Everything, you know, I just kind of want to come in and get fed. People like me, you know. Friends, I, I think that's a big error. In fact, I think the seeker-sensitive movement of the 70s and 80s and 90s that sort of went for this, this principle where attract people, you know, that are just like each other and kind of put them together in groups. I, I think it was well-meaning, but I think it was actually a, a really unbiblical way of forming churches and forming groups. I think it's good for us. To open up our homes. Here's another little thing that I think challenges us. That we sort of have an idolatry of niceness and interior decorating, don't we? That's one of the... That's one of the you guys know I bang on... I'm going to get on you women just a little bit. Because I, I, I get on guys about football and hunting. All right? So now's your turn, ladies. You have idols too. I don't know if you know that or not. But you have idols too. And I think one of the idols of our culture that cuts us off from authentic Christian community together is this sort of self-absorption we have with making everything nice in our world. And then, one brother agrees with me. <laughs> and then you see, the, you see the destructiveness of this? So the guys are running off watching football and hunting shows, and the women are running off watching HDTV interior decorating shows and wasting hours on the internet, Pinterest and all these little things. And I'm not saying that in and of themselves those things are bad, but, but do you see how quickly this can become an idol? Because you see how nice everybody else's stuff is, and they post only nice pictures on Facebook. And when their living room looks gorgeous on the picture, you think, oh gosh, my living room looks like a tornado went through it. And so I could never invite anybody over. I could never open up my home. And do you, see what the, 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 do you see what the strongest principle there is? It's not Jesus. It's not sharing our lives with people. It's not, it's not living out the context of, of, of what it means to be a Christian community, serving one another, encouraging one another as we're all enduring suffering to some level in this broken, fallen world. The defining characteristic is whether or not we feel like we can impress people with our stuff. And if there's a sheen on everything, friends, that is an idol. And I don't want to stand before God someday and have him say to me, you had five talents, but you wasted them all because you were waiting for that time in life where you can finally get to a place where your living room was presentable, where your two little kids weren't destroying everything everywhere, and there was Captain Crunch ground into the couch, and all the while hurting, suffering people who could have just used your heart and your life and the Jesus that's in you Never connected with you because you were trying to live up to an idol of a, of a classy living room. Friends, oh, that we wouldn't be that type of people. Come on, man. And this is, this is all of us, right? I dare you. I dare you in the month of December 
to invite somebody over to your house with a jacked up living room. No, no, I double dog dare you to invite somebody over. I triple dog dare you to find somebody in this church who you think is way above your demographic or in a culture that you could never, you know, move in. And for you to go up to them and say, hey man, why don't you come over to my house for lunch? I'm gonna boil some ramen and we're gonna make this thing happen. Ah, <laughs> oh, friends, when a group of people don't care about these things, and they zero in on each other's souls because people in this room are, are being ravaged by the enemy and who just need people. They don't need, your, they don't need your interior design. They need your heart. They need your life. And when a group of people do that, man, beautiful things happen. When people from different sides of the city, from different races, from different economic stratospheres, from, I mean, gosh, that is so beautiful. And what it does is it commends an onlooking world to Jesus. Do you see that? And just by the way we live together, it becomes an aroma of Christ. In fact, we, just, we read that in our catechism question. I'll, I'll end with this, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Put that catechism, catechism question back up there, Adam, if you would. Did you see what this, this beautiful question and answer? What is the church? What is the church? What are we doing here? Are we just here to sort of feed and get our little fill and move on our way? No, we're here to be a family that's on a mission together. We're here to revel in God's saving grace and then to live together in a way that, that, that preaches Jesus to an onlooking world. So what is the church? The answer of this historic compilation of historic Protestant catechism says, God chooses and preserves for himself a community elected for eternal life and united by faith, who love God, who love, follow, learn from, and worship God together. Now, one quick thing. Don't be tripped up by uh, that, that language elected or the language of choosing. As you know here, that's an open-handed uh, issue here at this church. Christians have been wrestling with this issue for thousands and thousands of years. But those are biblical words. In fact, Robert read out of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, that God chose us. In the Bible, these words elect. In fact, at the beginning of 1 Peter, it says, it calls his readers the elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Let me just summarize that by saying that, that essentially Christians have believed historically two things about that. That God has chosen us because we choose him. So he's choosing us because of our faith in him. Other Christians have said, well, no, I mean, we see how that might be attractive, but... You know, we're dead in our sins, and really our only hope of choosing God is that he would first choose us. I humbly, very, very humbly believe that, that the second one is more biblical. But regardless of what you believe about that, you don't need to be sort of abrasive or, 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 or feel strange about using that language of God choosing you or electing you. I think it is something you need to wrestle with. And if you want to go deeper into that subject, any of the pastors here would love to talk to you about it, preach messages on it. But you can use that language too. It's in the Bible. God chose you. Regardless of what you believe about why God chose you, God chose you. He elected you to life. But then look at that second sentence. That's what I want us to focus on. God then sends out this community to proclaim the gospel and prefigure Christ's kingdom. See, because there's coming a day when 
interior design and football allegiances and money and looks and well-behaved children will not matter. There will be no more sin in comparison. And our life here as a church is not pointing to the excellencies of our ability, but to the beauty of redemption forevermore, which is Jesus' kingdom to come. And so when we live together, we proclaim the gospel and prefigure Christ's kingdom by the quality of our life together and our love for one another. So I want you to see, here's the paradigm that I want to burn into our soul, Crosspoint, is that by, I don't want us to contrast evangelism as some sort of one-off specific activity and then life together as a church or community or fellowship. As we live together in the way that Peter is commending here, that we open up our homes, that we're patient with one another, that our love for one another covers a multitude of each other's sins, we become a strange aroma to an onlooking world that draws people to the beauty of Jesus. And by how we live together, by a bunch of people who forsake their idols, and love one another in spite of their insecurities, and prefer one another rather than their own comfort, and who encourage one another in the midst of their suffering and make a clean break with sin, that, by the way we do church together, becomes evangelism to an onlooking world. Do you see that? They're not compartmentalized. That's the beauty of it, friends. God's plan for preaching the gospel is primarily the life of the church by gathering together a bunch of dusty, jacked up, train wrecked, broken, pardoned rebels, putting them in a room together, people from every different walk of life, every different tribe and tongue and economic status, and saying, Figure it out, kids. Love each other and love each other patiently for the rest of your lives. Encourage one another. Share with one another. Give your life to one another. And I will do something in the way that this God says. I will make it a strange, irresistible, beautiful aroma to an onlooking world. And that's what Peter is commending us to do. How sweet is that? Like, how sweet is that? Oh, friends, it is better than anything in this world that it has to offer. Oh, so, I mean, that's a sweet meditation right there. Just life together as a local church. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? And now we get to come to the Lord's table and to partake of the bread and the cup. And think about what made this all possible. That we can all love each other in this way. For the strengthening of our souls. And for the glory of God's name. Friends, if you came into this room and you're not a Christian. This meal that we're about to take is for Christians. You really shouldn't partake in this meal. If you're not trusting in Jesus. Not because we want to single you out or embarrass you but because we love you enough that we don't want to make you confess something that you don't truly believe. We don't want to put you in a position of being a hypocrite. Because when we take this meal, when we take this little piece of bread here in just a moment in this juice, we are proclaiming that Jesus has died for us, that we are 
right with God through Jesus' work on the cross and that we are in Christ and that when God judges us on that day, we will be in Christ and he will judge us according to Christ's righteousness and not our sin. And if that's not the case with you, we would hate for you to proclaim that. But friends, here's the good news of the gospel is you don't have to go through a thousand steps or walk up some labyrinth or climb some tower in order for that to be true in your life. Even now, friends, even as we've been, been gathered here this morning, maybe God has given you eyes to see that. And you, right now, knowing when you came into this room that you weren't trusting in Jesus, maybe God has given you trust in Jesus. And so now all you need to do is not to recite some magic prayer or fill out a card or go through some class, but to look away from yourself and look to Jesus and what he did on the cross and to trust in him. And his righteousness and not your own. Friends, that's what it means to be a Christian. To trust in Christ's perfect work, not your sin. And if you do that even now, look away. Look away from yourself and look to Jesus. You can come to this table as well. Because this meal now is for you. And if you're a Christian from another church visiting for Thanksgiving, oh, we invite you to this table because we are not just connected to the several hundred people in this room. We are connected, as Robert prayed earlier, to all people everywhere, every tribe and nation and tongue of people, the redeemed, whoever is trusting in Jesus, you're part of this family. And so let's come now and remember Jesus' work and make a decision to continue in saying yes to God and no to the world and loving one another rather than ourselves. In just a moment, I'm going to pray and then I'll have us all stand. As I pray, ushers, if you would come forward and be prepared to serve and you can just find the table closest to you. Wait on one another. Our goal is not efficiency of lines. Our goal is to wait on one another, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And so let's come to the Lord's table thanking him that he has called us to be part of this beautiful family, the church. Ushers, come on down. Be prepared to service after I pray. Lord, I thank you for your, your word to us. Lord, how kind you are. You've called us together people from a thousand different circumstances and backgrounds, hundreds of different little cultural contexts. And in your kindness, you've you've raised us up above those broken structures into Christ. Oh, how sweet that is. How sweet that is that the truest thing about me is not that I'm not that I'm this ethnicity or this demographic or this particular preference but the truest thing about me and all of us who are trusting in Christ is that we are in Christ and because we're in Christ we are safe and secure from that day when we will stand before you all of our sin, all of our foolishness, all of our, all of our rebellion, God, we will find on that day has been washed over in the blood of Jesus, the God-man who, 
lived the perfect life and who laid down that perfect life on the cross and then died and rose again vindicating his perfection and proving that you accepted him and proving that he is God and proving that he reigns over death. God, praise you that on that day, all of our sin will be washed over and taken away by the power of Jesus and his work. And now that's brought us into a family that we get to love and serve. God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. How beautiful, how full, how rich. Father, would you drill this deep down into us? On Thursday, as we came around tables with a banquet of food, praise you, God, for your bounty in our lives. But now as we come around this much more eternal and important table with just tiny little morsels, God, to point us towards the true meal of Christ, the, the only meal that truly satisfies. God, would we revel in what it means to be your people and to love one another? Because see, I woke up Friday morning after gorging myself and I was hungry again. But God, we can come to this table and we can be satisfied forever. God, how kind you've been to us. How kind. Lord, if there's anyone in this room who came in not trusting in you, would you give them faith? Would you give them eyes to see so that they can turn away from self-trust and sin and look to Jesus and trust in him? the only meal that can satisfy. And as we come around your table, would we, would we take an ax to the root of our idols? Would we forsake image? Would we forsake comfort for the sake of living together in this beautiful way that Peter commends for your glory and our joy? In Jesus' name.